The Hammer, Chapter 36 Swallowing the lump in his throat, Corvin turned to find Gavin watching him intently. Gavin, I need to go as quickly as possible back to Kate. Gavin looked puzzled. The girl on the litter that Jordan and I were carrying. Gavin nodded eagerly and scampered away to disappear beneath a ragged slab of rock propped against the cavern wall. The crawl space turned into a low passage that wound deeper into the rock. New passages branched off in all directions. There seemed to be no end to the tunnels, but Gavin knew where he was going. He forged far ahead of Corvin, the glow of his fire stick often the only sign of his presence. Crawling after him through a low spot, Corvin found Gavin's light stuck in the rocks, but Gavin was nowhere in sight. Corvin lay back against the tunnel wall and closed his eyes. He had to rest, just for a moment. Sorrow swept over him as exhaustion drained his will to move another inch. He leaned his head against the large boulder. Before he knew it, Gavin was back and tugging on his hand. The boy held out a cup of cool liquid that tasted like weak apple juice. Corvin drained the cup. That tastes good. I could drink a gallon of that. Gavin nodded enthusiastically and pulled Corvin to his feet. He stood swaying on unsteady legs, dizzy with weariness. Gavin helped him by walking backwards, holding Corvin's hands, guiding him around corners and over ledges. Corvin stumbled along after him. The sound of a rushing waterfall pushed into his hazy thoughts, and a dense mist fell on his skin as if we were walking right through it. The sound faded behind him as they turned a corner and were welcomed by a bright light. Corvin lifted his eyes. They were in a larger room with a high domed roof from which hundreds of Lumians hung. Vines ran up the walls, trailing rows of tiny globes like strings of Christmas lights. Lush green leaves covered most of the stone walls. Raised garden beds divided the room, each growing a different variety of tree, shrub, or flower. The room throbbed with life and color. In the center, surrounded by a low stone wall, stood the largest tree Corvin had ever seen. Its trunk was bulbous and smooth as a boobab tree, the thick branches fanning out horizontally like a massive green table on a stout pedestal. At its base, a steady drip of clear fluid dropped into a stone basin. Gavin pulled him along the path toward the great tree. Passing through a short gate, the young boy dragged him down onto his knees in the thick moss that surrounded the trunk. A spring bubbled up from between the gnarled roots and flowed into a stone catch basin. Gavin filled a wooden cup, passed it to him, and scampered away. Corvin drank deeply, refilled it from the basin, and drank again. Gavin had obviously misunderstood his desire for more of the apple drink. This was not where he needed to be. Kate needed him to return with some food to strengthen her for the trip home. Maybe Gavin could help him find some. As he waited impatiently for Gavin to return, he studied the cup in his hands. It was intricately carved with symbols similar to the ones on the hammer. Corvin set it down and found that the ledge by the pool held many other carved objects. Some were of creatures he did not recognize, but in the middle of the carvings, he saw a replica of the plaza statue in Kadir. The woman's head wasn't broken off like the real one in Kadir, and it was not the same face as the broken statue. This one had long flowing hair and a smiling face. Gavin ran in through the gate and placed a basket of strange fruits at his feet. A grubby hand held up something dark blue about the size of a lemon, encouraging him to eat it. Thanks, Gavin, but I'll take this along to Kate. She's sick and needs it more than I do. He tried to pull his tired body to his feet, but Gavin pushed him firmly back onto the moss. The boy pointed at Corvin's chest and shoved the fruit at him again. He would not be letting Corvin go until he ate something. Corvin tried to bite it and almost broke a tooth on the tough skin. 
Gavin laughed, took it for a moment, and smacked the pointy end on a rock. It split into five equal sections. Poking his finger under the thick white membrane, the boy pulled out a squishy purple tube and dropped it into Corvin's hand. Corvin went to nibble the end, but Gavin stopped him, pulled out another of the tubes, and showed him how to put it all in his mouth and bite down hard. Corvin followed his example, and sweetness exploded in his mouth as the nectar was released. Corvin grinned with pleasure, and the purple juice squirted out between his two front teeth. Gavin laughed again, and Corvin chuckled along with him. A feeling of strength and energy surged through him. Eating was a good idea. He would be no help to Kate if he was too weak to walk. More juice trickled down his chin, sending the young boy into hysterics. It was amazing that someone who had suffered so much could be so full of joy. Gavin's joy in his well-cared-for garden brought his own mother to mind. She would be worried about him, but he had no way to tell her he was okay. Hopefully he would see her again soon. Refreshed from the fruit, Corvin reclined into the moss. It was a long way back to the settlement. He would never make it if he didn't take a short rest. Gavin, can you wake me up in twenty minutes? The boy cocked his head, and Corvin realized how little sense that would make to someone in the Corps. I need a short sleep, but don't let me sleep long, okay? I've got to take some food to Kate. Gavin nodded and sat beside him with a piece of wood in his hand. Deftly he began to carve something, but it was slow going with his crude blade. Corvin dug into his pocket pulled out his Swiss army knife and tossed it to the boy. Gavin pulled out every blade and tool before he resumed his whittling with a huge smile of satisfaction. Corvin smiled, closed his eyes, and let the exhaustion overwhelm him. When he awoke, the light was fading and Gavin was nowhere to be seen. He'd slept too long. He scooped water into the cup and pushed himself up against the trunk of the tree, downing the sweet liquid and studying his surroundings for a sign of the boy or a clue of which way he should go to get out of Gavin's tree cavern. It was hard to know. The cavern wasn't round. It had seven sides, just like the hammer. Each section was divided by slender buttresses that soared overhead to meet in the center of the ceiling. Three of the sections had doors. Which one had he come in? Corvin stood to get a better view and discovered that the paths in the room formed the same star shape he'd seen on Kate's medallion. There was no way he could figure out the correct door. Gavin appeared from behind the tree. He pantomimed eating things off a table, motioned for Corvin to follow, then disappeared behind the tree. A few urgent notes on the panpipe pulled Corvin around the tree to see the boy disappearing into yet another door in the far side of the room. This is like following the white rabbit around Wonderland, Corvin muttered as he loped after him. A short distance inside the doorway, the passage was blocked by fallen rock. A pebble bounced off Corvin's head and he looked up to see a rope twisting in circles as Gavin climbed. Using a boulder for a stepping stool, Corvin grabbed the rope and followed. He was halfway up before he realized that for the first time in his life, he was climbing a rope with ease. Reaching the top, he spied Gavin standing on a crude wooden bench, peering through a small hole in the wall. The boy jumped down, pushed on a rocky knob, and the wall swung open. He entered, and Corvin had to sprint to avoid being left in the hall before it closed again. It was a large pantry, chock full of food. Cloth bags hung from pegs driven into the walls and on hooks that stuck out of the low ceiling. Baskets were piled on tables that ran down the center of the room, and a rack of pointed jars occupied the far wall. Gavin ran about, popping things into his mouth from baskets on the table. This is great, Gavin. I'll take some to Kate and the healer. Long loaves were piled in one of the baskets. Corvin picked one out. It smelled mildly of cinnamon, and he took a small bite. It was hard to chew, but it was the best bread he could remember eating in a long time. Do you know where every secret passage is in this place? he asked between bites. 
Is there also a faster way to get back to Kate? With a proud look on his face, Gavin went to the far wall. He pushed up on three pegs in succession and another small door swung open. Soft light fell on a tight spiral staircase. Gavin put a finger to his lips and motioned for him to follow. Okay, but we have to be quick. He set the basket down. Okay, but we have to be quick. He set the bread down and climbed the stairs with a growing sense of deja vu. Reaching the top, he realized why. It was the small door to the ledge above the high priest's hall where he had first met Jorid. At least from here, he could find his way back to Jockton's home in the settlements. He put his hand on the latch and Gavin shook his head, covering his ears and wincing. He was reminding Corvin that this was a creaky door. But Corvin knew how to beat that. Leaning hard on the latch, he eased the door open slowly and quietly. A voice floated up from below. Gavin backed further down the stairs as Corvin crawled out onto the ledge. A chandelier of small lamps now hung over the great table, where six men sat. Three in white cloaks, two in green cloaks of the priests, and one in a hoodless black tunic. Their eyes were on the wall beneath the ledge. Doubt the chief watcher had it destroyed, said one of the priests. We will never know the message it contained. It is for the best. Another voice spoke from below the ledge. It was Jorid. We have wasted much time and energy searching for a Corvan to come help us. Instead, we should use what resources we have to work together and bring peace and prosperity back to Kadir. Then you no longer believe the Corvan exists, Jorid? An older man in white asked. Jorid responded, The scrolls all describe the Corvan as a great leader, someone who speaks the truth and rules with authority. I no longer believe they point to a specific person, but rather to the office of the Corvan, a leader we can all follow. Terran was such a leader, he was a great man. Who found for us the lost hammer? A thin man in a green robe interjected. And who saved Tirith from the karst? added another priest, paying for his brave deed with his life. All of these are examples of a true Corvan, a true leader. Jorid walked into view and leaned on the table. That is the point of the scrolls. Our leaders are here among us, whether in the priests or among the people of the city. We only have to open our eyes and we will find the Corvan we required. Terran was one. Tirith is another. The old priest shook his head. Our people will never follow the young daughter of a priest. With the rebels threatening to tear the corps apart, the sightless at large, and reports of the broken gathering in secret caverns, we need an older priest to bring us through these troubled times. A young man in a white robe spoke up. After today, there is not a person in our city who does not believe she is capable of leading us. It is not up to the people of the city, the old priest retorted. The three men in the white robe sat up straighter. It is up to this council to decide. Heads nodded. I think Tirith is too headstrong, just like her father. He put his foolish plans with Morgan and Terran into action without the knowledge of this council. We lost good men from the priests and from the city because of his foolishness. Jord folded his arms across his chest. That is in the past. After today's events, I believe that if we do not appoint Tirith to the palace, the city will rise up against us. This would tear Kadir apart and leave us open to attack from the rebels or the broken or even from him. The old man in white pointed at Jorid. 
if the Corvan is not a specific person, then the ruler of all evil is likely to be a legend as well. Do not try to use superstition to frighten us into agreeing with you. Jorid walked back onto the ledge. His voice floated back into the room. If I were to be appointed the new high priest, and Tirith were ruler, would a marriage between the two offices dispel your fears? The old priest grunted and pursed his lips. Are you certain she will accept you? Tirith and I have been close since we were children. She has no one else in her life to consider. Everyone she loved is dead. The man in the black tunic spoke. Your plan has merit. Everyone around the table turned to look at him. Corvin recognized that voice. It was the captain they had met at the City of the Dead. Many are still suspicious of the priests, but everyone trusts Tirith. Now that she possesses the hammer, she will embody the truth. With you to manage the political sides of leadership, we may yet create the stability we all require, including the soldiers. He stressed the final word as he leaned back in his chair and folded his arms. There was a long moment of silence. Then let us proceed, declared the old priest. George shall be appointed high priest, and Tirith will be ruler of the corps. In a short time, Tirith will be of age and permitted to marry. As soon as an agreement can be reached between them, we shall celebrate the first marriage between government and religion. The old man in white clapped his hands together. This may yet prove to be a prosperous time for all. The men pushed back from the table. The man in black spoke again. There is one other matter we must discuss. That is what to do about the opening my men uncovered in the core shield. It has been reported to me that there is an open passage beyond the break, leading upward. It must be destroyed, George stated emphatically. No doubt the chief watcher was using it to bring the Rakash through to Kadir. We should not wait for more evil to enter. We must keep ourselves separated from whatever is out there if we hope to rebuild and survive. There were nods of agreement from around the table, but not from the man in black. Take some of the priests with you tonight, the old priest said to Jord, and destroy that cavern. Remove the Lumians and seal off the settlement. We shall pass a law banning anyone from going that way again. Now that we have the hammer back, our laws will be judged much more swiftly and severely. He pounded his fist three times on the table. The men all stood and made their way to the front door. Jord and the old priest remained behind at the table. Corvin inched away from the ledge, keeping his eyes on the two priests below. Without Jockton, the passage beyond the crack in the core shield was his only hope of getting Kate home to safety. He had to beat Jord and the priest back to the settlement. The old priest pointed at the wall in front of them. You must take what is left of this great tapestry and destroy it. Without the key in the center, it is useless. Partial knowledge is more dangerous than you know. The old priest left the room. The door shut, and Jord walked up to the tapestry, nodding to himself. The door shut, and Jord walked up to the tapestry, nodding to himself. Unless you have the key. Corvin slid back farther on the ledge until Jord was out of sight. Of course, the chief watcher had cut out the center and left it on the chair, the same chair that Jord had been sitting on after the lizard left. Jord most likely had taken that piece of tapestry for himself. Corvin's feet brushed the door, and it let out a muted squeak. Corvin quickly slid through it and quietly descended the stairs. Gavin was waiting for him in the storage room, nibbling his way around the table like a fussy mouse. Corvin shut the door behind himself, 
Gavin, he whispered, I need to get back to the Molokar settlement just as soon as I can. Gavin did not seem to understand where Molokar was, so Corvin drew out a map in the dust on the table and told him why he needed to get Kate home before she died. The only way out is the crack in the wall. I have to get there before Jorid does. Gavin added some of his own markings to the map, drawing strange figures around the falls. A tear fell into the dust and Gavin touched his chest, shook his head, and pointed to the places beyond the broken bridge. More tears welled up into his eyes. Are you saying you can't go with me past the bridge? The boy nodded. Why not? Gorvin looked down for a moment, unwilling or unable to tell him. I'm sorry, Gavin, but I have to go. Kate needs me. Can you take me as far as the bridge? Gavin nodded and his eyes brightened. He moved around the room, filling a small sack with his choice of the various items in the baskets on the table. Drawing the string tight, he handed it to Corvin and beckoned for him to follow. Corvin wondered how long it would take Jorah to get his man together. If they closed that crack before he could take Kate through, she was as good as dead. Even if they could find someone to open the other door, there was no way to take her back through the labyrinth. Gavin led him on through various tunnels and the broken foundations of buildings. He did not seem to be in any hurry to get to their destination, and Corvin kept urging him on. At times they crossed the streets above ground. There was no fog, but the darkness was almost complete, and he saw no one as they passed. Finally they arrived at the ruin of a gatehouse near the lower bridge. Corvin turned to the boy. I wish we didn't have to say goodbye so soon. Are you sure you can't come with me? The boy pointed out over the river and shook his head. Corvin knelt down. Gavin threw his arms around his neck and cried silently on his shoulder. "'I will miss you, Gavin,' he whispered into his ear. "'You're like a brother to me.' The young boy pulled back, a pleased smile on his tear-stained face. Reaching into his tunic, he pulled out the star-studded holster and held it out to Corvin. "'No, Gavin, you keep it. I want you to have it.' The boy pressed its familiar weight into Corvin's hand. The hammer was back in its place. How could this be? He snapped it open and pulled it out. Gavin had whittled an exact replica from his block of dark wood. Corvin's eyes were moist. It's beautiful, Gavin. I will always carry it with me to remind me of you. He buckled the holster back in place. The carved hammer would not only remind him of the funny, earnest little boy who'd given it to him, it would help him to remember the importance of being loyal and true. Corvin wished he had something to give Gavin, something meaningful, valuable. He did have a gift like that. He fished out the pouch with the red seeds. They belonged here, not in his world above, and nobody would appreciate their worth more than Gavin. I want you to have these, Gavin, so you won't forget me. The boy tugged at the cord, and a soft red glow lit the tracks his tears had traced down his dusty face. He looked at Corvin in awe. Pointing to the roof of the cavern, he traced a wide arc with his hand. He took only one of the pulsing red tears from the bag and tucked it away in his tunic. Pulling the pouch gently closed, he handed it back to Corvin as if it contained all the wealth in the world. As Corvin returned it to his pocket, his hand fell on the broken mirror glass. He pulled it out and showed it to the young boy. As soon as Gavin touched the circle, the two curved sides split apart from each other. A smile broke over Gavin's face as he picked up the sparkling white one and touched it to his heart. He closed Corvin's hand around the blue one and pushed it up to Corvin's chest. For us to remember each other? The boy nodded, hesitated, and then reached into his robe. He pulled a slender silver chain out and over his head. Tugging Corvin down to his knees, he pushed the chain under his hood and around Corvin's neck. 
Corvin stood and held out the chain. Hanging from the end was another silver medallion. It looked the same as the one Kate carried and had the same seven-sided star on one side, but it did not glow when he touched it. Thank you, Gavin. I will never... The boy was already gone. A mournful tune floated over the ruined city. Corvin turned and walked onto the bridge, surprised to find the metal plates replaced and tightly bolted down. The Lumians were getting lighter. The thought of Jord rousing his men quickened Corvin's pace, and he jogged toward the great bend in the river road. Crossing the fields, he looked back along the river. There was no one in sight. He slowed his steps a little to conserve his energy and began the long hike up the terraces to the settlement entrances. At the steps on each corner of the trail, Corvin looked back to the city. He had to get back to Kate, but strangely he was finding it hard to leave Kadir behind. He was saying goodbye to people that were now a part of him, Reu, Madame Tori, Gavin, and Tirith. He had not felt this lonely since his journey began. His father was right. To love was to embrace pain at times enough to break your heart. Climbing a set of stairs, he passed the scarecrow with his painted eyes and thought of the sightless. They could not drown. Were they still on his trail? He turned and looked back over the valley. Nothing moved on the ground, but high overhead, a small shadow and dark wings swooped past the blue Lumian moon. He pushed the thought away. One thing he'd learned on his journey was that he didn't need to fear what might be around the next bend. He just needed to take the next step. He looked at his feet and moved one in front of the other. Okay, Corvin, that's one. How about another? He moved his other foot forward. Good enough. Let's keep going. Where was he going? He was going to take Kate home. How would he get there? Right now, that didn't matter. All that mattered was the next step. His heart lifted and his head came up. He was not going to give in to fear. Stepping past the scarecrow, he whistled his father's tune. Someone else whistled it with him. He was not alone. A tall gray man walked beside him. <laughs>